0: I'm not going to introduce myself, uh, so uh, at this point uh, you all know me. So I am just going to go straight into my talk, which is titled Matthias Aquarius's Super Transcendental Critique of the University of Being. The subject of my talk today is obscure, even by obscure Thomist standards. His name, which has been misrepresented both in Latin and in English, and was almost misrepresented in the title of this talk, is Mattia Aquarius, or Matthias of Aquara. He was a late 16th century Italian-Dominican metaphysician. My goal in this talk is to get you interested in this late 16th century Italian-Dominican, and to do so by presenting what I'm calling his Super Transcendental Critique, of the university of being. The structure of the talk is simple. First, I'll explain what a super transcendental metaphysics is and make the case for thinking that Matthias in fact has one. Then I'll turn to his critique of the university of being and draw attention to one particular line of that criticism that employs his super transcendentalism. I'll close with some remarks about why I think that critique should trouble both Orthodox Scotists and Orthodox Thomists. So, section one: Matthias Aquarius's supertranscendental metaphysics. If we want to understand Matthias's supertranscendental critique of the university of being, we first have to understand his supertranscendental metaphysics. But to do that, we need to understand the meaning of the word supertranscendental, transcendental a word that Matthias never uses. But we are going to use it, so we ought to begin by clarifying what it means, and then proceed to see why it's not wrong for us, or anachronistic for us, to attribute that to Matthias's interpretation of Thomistic metaphysics. So for the purposes of this talk, I am not going to use the word transcendental in the way that St. Thomas used it. Rather, I'm going to use it the way that many Thomists after him used it. For St. Thomas, transcendence was not yet a technical term of art. Thus, we find him saying that the operation of thought is transcendence vis-a-vis motion, that the human soul is transcendence vis-a-vis the capacities of the body, and that it is impossible for there to be an extended quantity so small that it is transcendens vis-a-vis sensible qualities. Those are not the transcendentals. It's only after Aquinas that transcendental becomes a technical term of art, and it's in that later way that we'll be using it. After all, this presentation is about Matthias Aquarius, not Thomas Aquinas, and this is how he used it. For us, then, something is transcendental if and only if it is not limited to a single category of being, but especially if it is coextensive, either absolutely or disjunctively, with all real beings. That description does place us firmly in the territory of the classic presentations of the transcendentals that we all know and perhaps love. Using this more precise understanding of transcendentality, we can then construct an equally precise concept of super-transcendentality. Something is super-transcendental if and only if it extends to more than real beings, and especially if it extends to more than all real beings. But what could this more possibly be? Well... Unreal things seems like the obvious answer, but what are those? The typical examples given by early modern scholastics can all be grouped under the shared label of merely intentional objects. Cats are real beings. Dogs are real beings. But the species cat, the species dog, and a fortiori, the species species, are not real beings at least not according to nominalists or moderate realists. Nevertheless, these concepts of second intention, or merely intentional objects, or as they are more commonly referred to, beings of reason, do seem like they have some features in common with real beings. Not only dogs and cats, but also the species dog, the species cat, and even the species species, All seem to be thinkable, intelligible, imaginable, apprehensible, and so on. As such, any feature common to real beings and beings of reason will qualify as a super transcendental feature. Whether that's the only way to qualify as a super transcendental will come up later, but I'm not going to answer that now. For now, it's enough to say that if something is common to real being and being of reason, then it is super-transcendental. With this basic grasp of super-transcendentality in hand, we can now ask the critical question. Did super-transcendentality play any significant role in Matthias Aquarius's understanding of the Thomistic science of metaphysics? To answer that question, I'd like to examine some passages from his explanations of the twelve books of Aristotle's metaphysics. The first explanation of book one is concerned with the question, quote, whether being taken simply, i.e., as common to God and creatures, is the primary subject of metaphysical science according to the primacy of correspondence, close quote. Matthias draws the structure of his explanation not from Aquinas' commentary on the metaphysics or from other Thomists, but rather from certain Scotists. I know for certain that he was reading uh, Antonius Andreas, and I suspect that he had some kind of Scotist super-commentary on Andreas's commentary, but I haven't been able to pin that down. According to Matthias... The Scotists that he's engaged with tackle this topic in three phases. First, they clarify the meanings of the terms involved in the question. Second, they criticize Averroes' idea that God and separate substances are the primary subject of metaphysics. And third, they draw a number of corollaries from their main theses. And just as a reminder, that main thesis is that being taken simply, i.e. as common to God and creatures, is the primary subject of metaphysical science according to the primacy of correspondence. More on that in a moment. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Matthias takes issue with his Scotist interlocutors on every single one of those points. The first passage that's of particular interest to us, however, appears in the context of his criticism of the Scotists' account of the meaning of the word primacy, Matthias thinks that they have failed to distinguish between three different kinds of primacy, all of which apply to the subject of a science. The first sort of primacy is what he calls the primacy of perfection, or degree, or principality. According to this kind of primacy, the primary subject of logic is demonstration, which is the most perfect form of argument. The primary subject of natural philosophy is the first mover, which is the most perfect cause of physical change. And the primary subject of sacred theology is God as God, i.e. God understood sub deitatis, which presumably is the most perfect object of theological knowledge, though Matthias does not say so explicitly. The third sort of primacy, I know that I skipped the second, that was on purpose, is the primacy of attribution. Here, we are concerned not with what is highest or best in some class, but rather with that of which something else is predicated or to which something else is referred. According to this kind of primacy, the primary subject of logic will be the syllogism, or the argument. The primary subject of natural philosophy will be the changeable body, body, and the primary subject of sacred theology, he thinks, will be Christ our Savior, i.e. Christ understood subratione salvatoris. All of this brings us to the second sort of primacy that Matthias distinguishes, which is also the kind of primacy at issue in the question, namely the primacy of correspondence, or the primitas adequationis. I am aware of the dangers that come with translating adequatio as correspondence, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, It's not just that the alternatives are worse, which in fact they are. Adequation simultaneously manages to offend the English language and fail to communicate in it, while adequacy is inadequate for reasons illustrated by that very sentence. It's also... Uh, and more importantly, that translating ad equatio as correspondence has positive merit. Etymologically, both terms combine a preposition with a noun signifying a relation between two things. And in both cases, the relation is one of alignment ad equatio, co responding. More importantly, however, I can be perfectly confident, morally certain, that no one here at this conference is in danger of imposing later theories of correspondence on a scholastic thinker's thought. So, I'm going to use correspondence and you're going to deal with it. What exactly is this primacy of correspondence as Matthias understood it? Where the primacy of perfection has to do with identifying what is noblest or best in some class, and the primacy of attribution has to do with identifying that of which other things are predicated, or to which other things refer, the primacy of correspondence has to do with identifying the ratio in virtue of which some class is defined, and so in virtue of which class membership is determined. According to this sort of primacy, the primary subject of logic is being of reason. The primary subject of natural philosophy is changeable being, and the primary subject of sacred theology is God's self-revelation. With these distinctions in hand, we can now turn to Matthias's account of the subject of metaphysics. This is text 1 on your handout. He says, As was the case in logic, natural philosophy, and sacred theology, so also is this threefold subject found in metaphysics. For there is something that is primary according to the primacy of perfection— and this is the genus of abstract things, i.e. separate substances. There is something that is primary according to the primacy of attribution, and this is substance, which many people want to be the subject of metaphysics, as John Jacob Pavasius recounts in his first disputation. And there is something that is called the primary subject according to the primacy of correspondence, and this is is being as common to God and to creatures, to real being and to being of reason. Thus, it was necessary to distinguish this triple primacy in order to clarify the subject of metaphysics. But the Scotists failed to do so. With so much going on in that passage, it's easy to miss the little phrase that Matthias adds to the formulation of the Scotist thesis. A little phrase that, nevertheless, amounts to a momentous modification. As we have already seen, the scotistic claim is that being taken simply, i.e. as common to God and creatures, is the primary subject of metaphysical science, according to the primacy of correspondence. But here in this passage, we find Matthias saying that the primary subject of metaphysical science, according to the primacy of correspondence, is being as common to God and to creatures, to real being and to being of reason. If he's serious about that last phrase, then it constitutes nothing less than a super-transcendental transformation of the science of metaphysics. Moreover, it would mean that his criticism of the Scotists' position is not that they go too far by including both God and creatures under the subject of this science. Rather, it's that they do not go far enough since they include only God and creatures under the subject of this science. And metaphysics, Matthias seems to say here, must also include beings of reason within its subject. Now, to most of the Thomists in the room, I imagine this claim will come as a shock. The undeniable consensus among contemporary interpreters of Aquinas is that he identifies the subject matter of metaphysics with ens commune, and that ens divinum stands to ens commune as principle and cause but not as subjective part. And if contemporary Thomists are disinclined to include God within the subject matter of metaphysics, they will surely be disinclined to include beings of reason within its subject matter. After all, God and creatures are at least real. The difference between Matthias's interpretation of Thomistic metaphysics and the contemporary consensus only becomes more acute when we continue to read. In text 2 on your handout, you'll find Matthias's explanation of how he thinks we should understand this time the term being, as it appears in the question. He says, being, ends, can be understood in two ways. In one way, as a noun. In this way, its abstract form is not to be, essay, but beingness, essentia. As such, it mainly signifies essence, not essay, and it is divided by the one and the many. In another way, being is understood as a participle, and in this way it is divided by the ten categories. In the present question, being is understood in the first way, because it is in this way that it signifies the truth of the proposition, i.e. that about which we can form an affirmative proposition, as St. Thomas says in De Whence, being understood in this way, is said of all things, be they real beings or beings of reason, and it is that to which it belongs to be in whatever way it is. I have to confess that the first time I read that passage, I found it, quite frankly and quite literally, incredible. Not only does Matthias distance the subject matter of metaphysics from Aquinas' Doctrine of Essay, which is sure to upset the existential Thomists, but he also distances the subject matter of metaphysics from the Ten Categories, which is sure to upset the essentialist Thomists. In their place, he realigns the notion of essence to correspond with the sense of being that expresses the truth of the proposition, i.e., the sense of being that is common to real being and to being of reason. Why on earth would he do that? I think the end of the passage gives us at least a hint. He says that the sense of being that expresses propositional truth is that to which it belongs to be in whatever way it is. In other words, this is the sense of being that has the widest scope and so is all inclusive. And if metaphysics is really going to be the common or universal science, then its subject has to be exactly that. That hypothesis finds, I think, further confirmation later in the first explanation. While critiquing the SCOTists' third corollary to the main thesis, Matthias offers a brief survey of the different positions that have been held on the subject matter of metaphysics. He tells us that some people, like Al-Farabi, think that the subject is God. Others, like Averroes, think the subject is God and the genus of separate substances. Others, who seem to go unnamed, think the subject is celestial substance. Still others, like Alexander and Pavasius, think its subject is substance in general. And then we come to what he identifies as the two Thomist positions. Some Thomists, Matthias tells us, think that the subject of metaphysics is predicamental being, or being as common to the ten categories. This is Flandrensis' view. Others, who he glosses as wanting to harmonize Aquinas with Albert and Scotus, think that the subject is real per se being as common to God and creatures. Matthias disagrees. He says, this is text three on your handout, Pache everyone, I say that the subject of this science is not just one, but threefold. The first is uh, is what is called the principal subject, and this is God and the genus of separate substances, which is what is principally aimed at in this science. The second is called the subject of attribution, and this is substance, or predicamental being, to which many of the properties considered in this science are attributed. The third is the primary subject according to the primacy of correspondence, and this is being as common to God and creatures, being per se and being per acidens, real being and being of reason. And this conclusion does not need lengthy proof. The arguments brought forward by the proponents of the other positions prove it even though they do not attend to the fact that Aristotle sets forth in Metaphysics 4 that he wants to discuss real being and being of reason, and that in Metaphysics 6 he discusses being accidens, though he does not do so primarily, but secondarily, as St. Thomas says in his comments on Metaphysics 6. Therefore, we should posit the subject of correspondence to be that which is commonly predicated of all these things. Close quote. The first thing to note here is that Matthias makes a further addition to the formula. Not only does the subject of metaphysics include both God as common to both being as common to God and creatures, and being as common to the real and the rational, but it also now includes being as common to the per se and the paracidedens. This should drive home just how committed Matthias is, to this idea of metaphysics as being all-inclusive. The second thing to notice is the rationale that he offers for this inclusivity. Namely, that if other thinkers were sufficiently attentive to Aristotle's discussions of ens perocidens and ens rationis, they would see that their own arguments about the subject of metaphysics lead to his, Matthias's more inclusive conclusion. The reference to Aquinas's distinction between what metaphysics is primarily concerned with, namely real being and per se being, and what it's only secondarily concerned with, namely being of reason and being parachidens, is especially interesting. Where most people read metaphysics 4 and 6 as excluding being of reason and being parachidens from the subject matter of metaphysics, full stop, Matthias reads them, and interprets Aquinas as reading them, to be excluding being of reason and being parachidens only from the primary subject of metaphysics. And given the distinctions we've already seen him make, it's not hard to discern what senses of primary Matthias thinks are at issue. Metaphysics 4 and metaphysics 6 are excluding being of reason and being accidens from the primary subject of metaphysics according to the primacy of perfection and according to the primacy of attribution, not from the primary subject of metaphysics according to the primacy of correspondence. For the ratio entis applies to all beings, whether creator or creature, real or rational, per se or per accidents. I've tried to illustrate this totality visually with figure number one on your handout. It is the cube of metaphysics, or the cube of being. The question, not just for Matthias, but also for us, is what sort of unity this super transcendental being, i.e. the sense of being that expresses the truth of the proposition, has. And that brings us to Matthias' critique of the univocity of being. Section 2, Matthias Aquarius's super-transcendental critique of the univocity of being. No one at this conference will be surprised to find that Matthias Aquarius, O.P., thinks that being as captured in figure one is analogical rather than univocal. But we might be surprised to find out just how analogical he thinks it is, for he thinks that being understood in this way is multiply analogical. In his first explanation of Metaphysics 4, Matthias explicitly tackles the question of whether ends is univocal or analogical. The majority of that explanation is dialectical in nature, but eventually we arrive at Matthias's positive view. He interprets classic Thomistic passages on analogy like Summa Theologiae one thirteen three, De Potentia 7.7, 7, Summa one thirty two, and Sentences five two as all consonant with, rather than opposed to, both one another, and the fourfold account of the multiple senses of being found in Aquinas' comments on Metaphysics 4, so the passage that he's looking at. Namely, that being is predicated analogously of substances, accidents, motions to and from substances and accidents, and beings of reason, which are derived from substances, accidents, and motions to and from substances and accidents. What results is, I think, the super transcendental understanding of being that we've already discussed and that I've captured in figure one. With this sense of being in hand, Matthias goes on to distinguish three different but non-competitive divisions of analogy. First, there is the familiar threefold division of analogy according to whether the analogous ratio is predicated with reference to a subject, with reference to an end, and with reference to an efficient cause. Second, there is a division between analogy simpliciter, which excludes generic unity, and analogy secundum quid, which does not. This came up uh, yesterday, and it's interestingly how Matthias interprets the sentences text where Aquinas talks about um, something that is analogous, secundum esse sed, uh, sed non secundum rationem. That is, in Matthias's second division, only analogy secundum quid, not simpliciter. The third division is into analogies of determinate distance and analogies of indeterminate distance. Analogies of determinate distance involve a determinate relation of one analogate to the other, um, such as the the fact that the definition of one is included in uh, in the definition of the other, Um, whereas analogies of indeterminate distance, by contrast, do not involve that determinate relation of definitional dependence. Matthias employs these three distinctions when articulating his three core conclusions about the analogy of being, so the analogy of figure one. The first conclusion is that when being is predicated analogously of substances and accidents, right? so just within the creature part, that analogy will be A... Simpliciter rather than secundum quid, b, determinate uh, of determinate rather than of indeterminate distance, and c, either ad subjectum, ad finem, or ad efficiens. The second conclusion is that when being is predicated analogously of God and creatures, it will be different. That analogy will be a, simpliciter rather than secundum quid, b, of indeterminate rather than determinate distance, and C, either ad finem or ad efficiens, but not ad subjectum. The third conclusion is that when being is predicated analogously of real being and being of reason, that analogy will be A, simpliciter rather than secundum quid, B, of indeterminate rather than determinate distance, and C, only odd efficiens, and that only in a secondary sense. So the mind thinking up the beings of reason is the efficient cause in a secondary, not primary way of the beings of reason. Now, much more could be said about Matthias's positive account of analogy. For us, however, the important thing to see is that the super transcendental sense of being that constitutes the primary subject of metaphysics, according to the primacy of correspondence, cannot be reduced to or identified with any one of those three divisions of analogy. So, keeping all of that in the back of our minds, I'd like now to turn to one particular line of Matthias's critique of the university of being, in which this notion of super-transcendentality seems to play an important role. One of the standard Thomistic arguments against the university of being proceeds from divine simplicity. We talked about that yesterday. In its simplest form, it goes like this. If being is univocal between God and creatures, then God is not simple. But God is simple, so being is not univocal between God and creatures. And the standard proof of the consequence in the major premise goes like this. If being is univocal between God and creatures, then the ratio divinis must include at least the ratio entis, wherein God and creatures agree, and some other real ratio, wherein they differ. But if the ratio divinis includes these two real rationes, then God is not simple. Ergo, if being is not univocal between God, if being uh, is univocal between God and creatures, then God is not simple. The Scotistic tradition was well aware of this line of argument, and Matthias was well aware that they were well aware. And so, in the dialectical part of his first explanation of Metaphysics Four we find him reporting the following Scotistic rebuttal. And I take it that this is uh, representative of the the Andrean side of the Scotists. Um, This is text 5 on your handout. The Scotists say that there belongs to God a real concept, wherein he agrees with the caused thing, namely the concept of being, and one wherein he differs, namely an intrinsic mode but because neither the concept wherein god agrees with uh, wherein god agrees nor the concept wherein he differs is perfect for the concept of being cannot be perfect without its mode nor its mode without its concept it follows that there is no composition in god for composition is from a perfect concept and an imperfect concept not from an imperfect concept and an intrinsic mode close quote The Scotist response here relies on the claim that the concept of being and the concept of the intrinsic mode of being, like infinite, are both imperfect concepts. Moreover, the Scotists admit that composition follows when one of the real concepts is perfect and the other is imperfect. At least this line of Scotists admits that. As such, if Matthias wants to break their argument, he needs to show that at least one of these two concepts, namely the concept of being or the concept of its mode, is perfect. And that's exactly what he does in text 6. The concept from which the first per se best-known principle is composed is the most perfect intelligible thing. But the first and simply best-known principle is composed from the concept of being without a mode. Therefore, the concept of being without a mode is a perfect concept. The first principle that Matthias is talking about here is the principle of non-contradiction. No being, both is and is not, in the same respect, at the same time, etc. The core of this principle is the claim, no being, both is and is not. And that core claim is composed from the concept of being alone. Not being plus some node, just being. But what sense of being is this? Given that we're focused on the most fundamental of all propositions, it stands to reason that the sense of being in question is the one that expresses the truth of a proposition. It also wouldn't hurt to recall Matthias's insistence in text two that only that sense of being captures that to which it belongs to be in whatever way it is, a phrase that resonates with the PNC's closing qualifications in the same respect, at the same time, etc., etc., etc. More importantly, this wide-scope interpretation of the principle also just seems right. For we can apply the principle of non-contradiction to substances and accidents, God and creatures, real beings and beings of reason, beings per se and beings per accidens. It's true that no tiger is both carnivorous and not carnivorous in the same respect at the same time. It's true that no creature is wise and not wise in the same respect and at the same time. It's true that no genus is both predicable and not predicable in the same respect and at the same time. And it's true that no fat, narcissistic Dominican loves having a captive audience and doesn't love having a captive audience in the same respect and at the same time. And all of these truths are expressed by the sense of being that corresponds to the truth of a proposition. Namely, the super-transcendental sense of being. It's clear from text 6 that Matthias thinks this super-transcendental sense of being has to be analogical, for its univocity would entail the composition of everything included under it, including God. But he also considers the possibility that it's univocal. In fact, he explicitly considers a scotistic argument from the principle of non-contradiction to univocity. That argument goes like this, text 7. The first principle is not manifold; therefore, neither is being; and so as a consequence, being will be univocal. The antecedent is clear because the first principle does not need to be distinguished, since it's best known and firmly he- and, and most firmly held, as seen in metaphysics 4. And the consequence is proved because the first principle is constituted from being. Therefore, if the first principle is not manifold, then neither is being from which it is constituted. I'm honestly not sure what to make of that argument. On the one hand, I can totally see how from a Scotistic perspective that already presupposes the univocity of being, it makes sense to use the fact that the PNC doesn't need to be distinguished as a sign of its univocity. On the other hand, I'm not sure how we're supposed to get there without already presupposing that univocal terms are the only terms that don't stand in need of distinction. More importantly, at least for the present context, it strikes me as a weird argument because it entails the, if it works, it entails the coextensivity of univocity and the PNC. But as we've already seen, the principle of non-contradiction has, at least prima facie, super transcendental extension. And the only Scotist I'm aware of who thinks that univocity has super transcendental extension is Nicholas Bonatus. And he's basically a heretic of Scotism on this point. Unlike me, however, Matthias was sure what to make of this argument, for he was sure that we need to distinguish the major's antecedent and then deny it in the relevant sense. He says in text 8, with respect to the argument about the multiplicity of the first principle, it should be said that a multiplicity in the first principle can be understood in two ways. First, such that the multiplicity of equivocation is not in it, and this we Thomists concede. Second, that the sort of multiplicity of analogy is not in it, and this we deny, for analogy suffices to preserve contradiction and to serve as a syllogistic middle, and so there is nothing untoward about the the first principle being manifold according to such a multiplicity. According to Matthias, then, the principle of non-contradiction is manifold, but analogically, not equivocally. And unlike equivocally disunified multiplicities, an analogically unified manifold does not need to be distinguished in order to serve as a syllogistic middle or to preserve contradiction. Indeed, it is precisely the principle of non-contradiction that is at issue. Since this response is pretty schematic, however, it leaves open the question of what Matthias thinks this analogically unified manifold actually looks like. Luckily, he tells us, albeit with a different super-transcendental principle as his example. Take a look at text number 9. The proposition, the whole multitude of beings is outside nothing, is not one, but many, such that the sense of the proposition is substance is outside nothing, quantity is outside nothing, etc. And when it is said in objection, that when a proposition is formed, the subject ought to be grasped by one concept, I say, in response, that on the basis of that argument you could prove that dog is univocal. The equivocal sense of dog is univocal, since all of the things that it refers to are outside nothing um, and so ought to be grasped by one simple concept, which is false. As such, I say of being that it is grasped by many concepts, or it must be said that it is grasped by one concept analogous ad unum. For Matthias, super transcendental propositions like no being both is and is not, and all beings are outside nothing, function exactly the same way as their terms, i.e., they signify an analogically unified multiplicity. And this must be the case, must be the case, for there are only two other alternatives, and they are both worse. Either we say that such propositions are purely equivocal, which is obviously false, or we say that they are univocal. But for the reasons we've already seen, that would entail composition in everything that falls under supertranscendental being, including God, which is false. And so we are now finally in a position to reconstruct Matthias's supertranscendental critique of the univocity of being. This is on the back of your handout. One. The sense of being that serves as the subject in propositions like the principle of non-contradiction and the whole multitude of beings is outside of nothing is super transcendental being. Super transcendental being is either equivocal, univocal, or analogical. What has happened? Pause for just a second, somehow I am missing one page. Uh, Yes, can I have the handout? Thanks. Excellent, appreciate that. Okay, so, um, from one and two, it follows therefore that the sense of being that serves as the subject in propositions like the principle of non-contradiction and the whole multitude of beings is outside nothing is either equivocal, univocal, or analogical. If it's equivocal, then propositions like the principle of non-contradiction and the whole multitude of beings is outside nothing are equivocal. But such propositions are not purely equivocal, therefore not A. If it is univocal, then the univocal concept of being that serves as their subject is either perfect or imperfect. If it's imperfect, then the best-known principles will be composed from an imperfect concept. But the best-known principles are not composed from an imperfect concept, therefore not B sub two. If the subject of these propositions is a perfect concept, then in God, there is composition of perfect concept, being, and imperfect concept, mode. But in God, there is no composition of perfect concept and imperfect concept, for that would involve real composition. Therefore, not be one. Therefore, it's not univocal. Therefore, the only option left, C, the sense of being that serves as the subject in propositions, like the principle of non-contradiction and the whole multitude of beings is outside nothing, is analogical. Okay, dialectically, I think this is a pretty powerful argument. The three premises that strike me as the most plausible ones for the SCOTIST to attack are 1, 5, and 11. The problem with attacking the first premise is that it's actually so weak a premise that there's almost nothing to attack, for premise 1 is intended to be neutral with respect to the three options laid out in premise 2. And that means that it's supposed to be understood, at least at this point in the argument, as Open to being spelled out equivocally, and I presume that that's exactly what deniers of supertranscendental theories, like orthodox Scotists and orthodox Thomists, will want to say, namely that supertranscendental being is only being equivocally. That brings us to the second possibility, deny premise five. The problem with this option is that it puts us in an awkward and, quite frankly, implausible position, namely having to deny that one or the other of the following propositions is not, uh, or having to deny that one of the following propositions is an instance of the principle of non-contradiction. No genus is both phi and not phi. No cat is both phi and not phi. For as soon as we have granted that those propositions are both instances of some one principle, we have stepped outside the realm of equivocity. And the same point applies to the principle all beings are outside nothing. Unless we're willing and able to bite the bullet and deny that the propositions all genera are outside nothing and all cats are outside nothing are two instances of this one principle, we simply cannot maintain that premise five is false. There's also one final untoward consequence of denying premise five. As we've seen repeatedly over the course of this conference, one of the few points that the Thomists and the Scotists agree on is the fact that equivocals do do not preserve contradiction. Thus, if the propositions at issue in premise 5 were really equivocal, it would follow that those propositions would not preserve contradiction. But one of the propositions in that premise is the very principle of contradiction. Therefore, denying premise five literally amounts to denying that the principle of contradiction preserves contradiction, and that seems uncomfortable. That means that denying 11 looks like the SCOTists' best option. This is especially true when we remember something that came up also earlier in this conference, namely that there's a disagreement among the SCOTists about how metaphysically weighty the university of being actually is. If you side with those who who make it a merely logical doctrine, couldn't you object to premise 11 by saying that the univocity of being entails a logical composition in our formal concept of God, but not a corresponding real composition in its objective concept, i.e. in God? Yes, you can. But then the argument, Matthias' argument, would conclude to the following disjunction. Either the super-transcendental sense of being that serves as the subject in these propositions is univocal, or it's analogical, and that is not a safe place for the Orthodox Scotus to be, at least not for any Scotus who wants to avoid unabashed bonatism. In that respect, however, I think Matthias's argument should be almost as uncomfortable for the Orthodox Thomists as it is for the orthodox Scotists. After all, orthodox Thomism is just as committed to denying super transcendental metaphysics as its Scotistic counterpart. But there are only two ways that I can see for us Thomists to pull that off. The first is to deny the argument by rejecting either premise one or premise five, since rejecting premise 11 is not open to us. The second possibility is for us to accept its conclusion but resist Matthias's identification of super-transcendentally analogous being with the subject of metaphysics. And that, I think, is easier said than done. So, Matthias's super transcendental critique of the university of being presents a problem for both Orthodox Scotists and Orthodox Thomists. To me, that makes it really interesting. I hope it does to you too. But I want to end this talk not with me, but with you illustrious Thomists, illustrious Scotists, what should we make of Matthias Aquarius's super transcendental critique of the university of being? Thank you.